Let's turn in our Bibles once again to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to read for the third time. First Peter chapter 2. And we're going to read from verse 18. Now we've looked at this passage of scripture in past days. We're turning to it again today. This will be the third time. And I, I would say in the will of God, probably next week as well, because there's another message here. And slowly, bit by bit, I believe we're getting a picture. We think of the prayer of the Greeks, we would see Jesus. And certainly Christ is here. First Peter chapter 2, verse 18 Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully, for what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even here unto were ye caught, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin. Neither was guile found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled. Reviled not again. When he suffered he threatened not. But committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bare our sins. In his own body in the tree. That we being dead to sin. Should live unto righteousness. By whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were a sheep going astray but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Amen. We'll have the reading there at verse 25. And we trust that God will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now this morning, my text is taken again from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 to 25. And my subject is to keep considering our supreme example. I want you to think today of God's people in different parts of the world suffering hardship, opposition and experiencing persecution. And in the midst of all that they face, I want you and would want them as well to remember, here's a vital principle to grasp. We have been called to suffer for Jesus Christ. 
It says in verse 21, For even here unto where ye call. We have been called to suffer with Jesus Christ. God allows wicked people to harm and hurt his children. Could be a boss at work who could make life hard for you as a Christian employee. So much so that there arises the day when you want to opt out of work and you don't want to go and face it. Could be a school teacher or a fellow pupil who's making life hard for you due to their opposition to Christ and the gospel. And there you are in the classroom and you're the only Christian and you're the butt of all the jokes. Could be true at university as well. Universities can be a, a hotbed for uh, radicalism and a hotbed for atheism and, uh, and hedonism and other things. Could be also found in the local church. It could be another professing Christian, jealous, carnal in certain areas, and that individual is so unloving, so critical, so judgmental that, that, that you're affected by it. And you're hurt. And you suffer. And I want to say this morning that our supreme example in suffering is Jesus Christ. Now we've already pondered the thought. He suffered for us. We've also pondered the thought, hearing and heeding the call to suffer for him. And you might say to yourself, or to me, it's impossible to suffer for Jesus Christ. How could we cope with that? Well, here's the answer. He has left us an example that we should follow his steps. Now think of how our Lord behaved when he suffered greatly at the hands of men. He suffered wrongfully. He suffered unjustly. Yet he bore it with great patience. He bore it bravely. He brought it prayerfully unto the Lord. And you only have to read the four Gospels. They record the facts of how he behaved and how he reacted when he suffered wrongfully. You only have to think of Christ's behavior in the garden towards those who came to arrest him. Led, of course, by Judas Iscariot, the, the one who betrayed him. Then they asked them calmly, whom seek ye? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. Think of him before the Sanhedrin council, trumped up charges. False witnesses, telling lies. Of course, the Sanhedrin was breaking the law because they were trying him at night. And he behaved with integrity. He stood there in a spirit of humility. He, he showed great dignity. Pilate, when he told him that he had power to crucify him, said, you have no power over me unless given you from above. The mob at Mount Calvary, shooting their fist at him, spitting on his face, saying you deserved it. The soldiers piercing his hands and feet, and all the while he was silent. He could, of course, call 12 legions of angels down from heaven and scatter them all, but he didn't. Not only because he was offering himself a once and for all sacrifice for sin. That's an important thing to remember. But also because he was leaving us an example to follow his steps. Now someone has said, contemplation of Christ leads to imitation of Christ. 
John Calvin, the great reformer, said, What you behold, you become. And you see, the Christian life's not merely a set of rules, not merely a set of commandments, not merely a set of principles in the line of duty. We can only do our duty whenever we constantly and continually look to Christ. And as we contemplate him, we will begin to imitate him. We will consider him. He's the supreme example in the face of suffering. If we're going to be Christ-like, if we're going to be victorious, if we're going to be triumphant when we're uh, unjustly accused and when we're talked about, if we're going to have the ability to pray and bring it to the Lord, then we need to keep considering our supreme example. And I have a few things that I want to say in relation to that. One, consider the purity of Christ. Look at verse 22 now. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Now that's a reference to the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. In theological language, we would talk about the impeccability of Christ. Jesus Christ never sinned. In thought, in word, in deed, Jesus Christ never said one wrong word. He never entertained an unclean thought. He never committed a sinful deed. He never overate. He never underslept. He was sinless. He asked the question, which of you convince of me of sin? He made the statement, the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. That is, there's no sin in my life that he can put his finger on. Twice his father testified from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And what was God pleased with? Many aspects of Christ's person and work, but he was certainly pleased with his sinlessness. The Lord Jesus was absolutely pure and spotless. Hebrews talks about him being the holy, harmless, undefiled son of the living God. He's the sinless one. And we're to contemplate And we're to consider the purity of Christ in his life and work. Isn't it true that lots of us have got problems getting the victory over certain sins in general and certain sins in particular? We oftentimes ask, well, well, how could I be victorious? Here's the answer, folks. Fix your eyes in the pure, spotless sun of the living God. The psalmist said in Psalm uh, 101, verse 3, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. There's the Old Testament standard. Now the truth is that there are wicked things come before our eyes. You think of those who sit in front of the television, two, maybe up to six hours a night. They fill their mind with what they see there, fill their ears with what we hear there. And then at the end of the night, maybe coming five to twelve, maybe slightly earlier, they lift their Bible, read a few verses, they pray a little prayer, they say, Lord, bless me. Bless my house. Lord, save my family. Lord, help me to go to sleep. Lord, help me at work tomorrow. Amen. Off the bed to go. Think about the movies that come out of Hollywood. 
with all the filth of sodomy, adultery, blasphemy, fornication, atheism that's there. Think of the, the, the pop stars with all their sensual antics and foul language. Think about even the, the call to play the lottery that's constantly on the television. Millions of minds being influenced to play. And, and what's it resulted in when we set wicked things before our eyes? The answer is a breakdown of holiness in our life. We have no victory over sin. We're full of guilt then. We become despairing. We want to give up. We feel we're powerless. And what you need to do is fill your mind with the purity of Christ. It's no good me saying to you, here's five rules and six principles and ten methods to follow. I'm not saying for us to go to the seminar or the Bible college to be taught how to do this or that. Because there'll never be victory in our lives. There'll never be triumph over sin in our lives if our minds are not in Jesus Christ. What we behold, we become. Over there in the book of Hebrews, in um, Hebrews uh, chapter uh, 3, we read the words in verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, notice how it's linked into calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Jesus Christ. Consider him. There's a fourfold call in Peter. We're called to holiness. We've been called from darkness into light. We've been called to suffer. We're going to be called into our eternal home one day. But linked to that calling is the necessity to consider him. And folks, when you're having your quiet time, you open your Bible, get down on your knees, or or sit in the chair, and you read the book because it says, Blessed is he that readeth. Remember, you're reading God's holy word. You should be praying. Lord, show me Christ today. Fill my hearts and mind with the purity of Christ. Because if you're filled with the purity of Christ, you'll not have that desire to set the wicked thing before your eyes. And when the wicked thing comes to your attention, you'll want to turn away. Because your mind is taken up with Christ. Over there in the uh, book of Philippians, in Philippians chapter 4, we read, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, Whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Now note the words, Philippians 4 and 8, think on these things. That's active. That's conscious. That's a deliberate choice and decision. That's a positive thing. That's a good thing. Think in these things. What things? I believe ultimately they all speak of Christ. Think of the things belonging to the sinless, spotless Son of God. Remember what John Calvin has said. What you behold, you become. In order to imitate Christ, we've got to to contemplate Christ. And every Christian is supposed to be imitators of Christ. We are Christ-like in our words, our work, our worship, etc. 
But in order to be Christ-like, we've got to, to contemplate him. We've got to take him into our minds. Maybe if I can put it this way. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? Well, you see yourself. And every day you look in the mirror, you see, well, I'm getting a little bit older. Maybe you see a grey hair here or there. Maybe you see a wrinkle or two. Maybe you see a line. Maybe you look in the mirror and say, gosh, I look good today. But when we look into the mirror of God's word, well, we're looking there to see Christ. He's the key to the Bible. He, he says, search the scriptures, for these are they that testify of me. And over here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, we read, But we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of God. Now, now what Paul is saying there, when you look into the mirror of God's word, and you behold the glory of the Lord, you behold Christ, then you're changed into that same image. You see, the, the imitation is brought about because of the contemplation. What happens when we see him? We're changed. We're changed into his image. Now let me ask this morning. Are you saved? Have you been to Jesus? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you born again? Have you got the love of Jesus Christ in your heart? You see, let's remember that salvation's all of God. Salvation is by the grace of God. Ephesians 2 and 8. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Jonah said, 2 and 4, salvation is of the Lord. But that salvation that we've been brought into includes victory over sin. It includes the whole doctrine of sanctification, set apart, called unto holiness. How do we live a holy life? How do we have victory? How do we know that we can be victorious? Consider the purity of Christ. See, let me say this morning that many professing Christians in Northern Ireland are not Christ-like. They've got the name Christian, but where is the nature of Christ? If you look at our text again, it says, Who did no sin, that's in relation to his works, neither was guile found in his mouth, that's in relation to his words. So he was sinless in his works and sinless in his words. That's the point that Peter's making here. And many Christians, of course, are mighty in words. They maybe have got control of their tongue. But they could be poor in their work for God. And others have no control of their tongue. And they're mighty in works for God. But out of their mouth comes guile, deceit, discord, treachery. But here's Christ. In his life and in his lips, the two of them went together in the text. 
Now, do you see it? Look at the book. There's no charge here. The Bible has loads to say about the tongue. I already preached some time ago five or six sermons on the tongue, a little instrument. And yet what a great fire a little spark can start. You think of a bit in the mouth of a horse. You think of the rudder of a ship. And the, the bit and bridle controls that horse. You think of the rudder of the ship controlling that big ship. And if your tongue is under control, what, what James is saying in James 3, it will not do great damage and harm. See, many Christians today rightly tell us, well, I, I, I don't get drunk and I don't smoke and I maybe don't go to the theatre or the movie house and I don't watch the, the filth of Hollywood and television I switch it off and I don't curse and I don't gamble and I don't follow the pop scene and then they tell us but when I do go to the prayer meeting which is good and I do attend church morning and evening and they say I do this and I do that and, and I give this and I give that but if the tongue is not under control now according to the Bible according to the Bible James 1 and 26 if you can say, well, this is what I don't do, and this is what I do do, but your tongue is not under control, then according to the Bible, your religion is empty. It's vain. Isn't it true that there have been many squabbles in churches over a loose tongue? Isn't it true that many people have been injured and stabbed by a loose tongue. And what we need is the tongue of the learned. And we can only have that. When we keep our eyes in Christ. When we watch our tongue. Consider the purity of Christ. He did no sin. Neither was guile found in his mouth. Notice secondly. Consider the passion of Christ. Look at verse 23. Who when he was reviled. Reviled not again. When he suffered. He threatened not. But committed himself unto him that judges righteously. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body of the tree. We being dead to sin should live unto righteousness. By whose stripes you were healed. Notice three things here. It mentions about Christ being reviled. It mentioned Christ suffering threatenings. And then in verse 24 it mentions Christ's death. Let's remember the Lord Jesus Christ sealed his testimony as the beloved son of his heavenly father by his death on the cross. And if we're going to live for Jesus Christ, it may be in the 21st century, that some of us, even in Northern Ireland, are called to seal our testimony with our blood. That's been true in the past, could be true again. A witness, of course, remember, is a martyr. Called to be witnesses, though the Greek word is martyrius, which means martyr. In other words, be willing to die for Christ. Life's not your own, you're bought with a price. Your body belongs to the Lord, he can do with it whatever he wants. Now, of course, I'd have to say this. It may not that we will ever have to face a martyr's death. 
But we will be called to suffer. You will be reviled. You will be threatened. Your name can be dragged through the mud. The works of your hands can be misconstrued as evil. Your best efforts can be cursed. You can be lied against and despised. And of course it does happen. And it is happening. And it will happen. And once you begin to do a work for God, you're going to be reviled by the world. Of course, those that do the devil's work, like Richard Dawkins, they're revered by the world. They're highly thought of. And the truth is that once you begin to do a work for God, you're going to be reviled by the world. And you could even be reviled by a misinformed Christian. Let me explain. Charles Haddon Spurgeon had a son. His son was a minister in New Zealand. And someone close to that son uh, repeated an evil slander about him. And it started doing the rounds. And eventually it came into the UK. This was before there was the telephone, of course. And Charles Spurgeon, he, he heard it. This was about his son. And immediately he believed it. And he sent a letter off and he, he told his son what he thought of him. He gave him a dressing down. Give him a piece of his mind. He, he called him to step down from the office in the church. But you know what? It was all a lie. It was an attack of the devil. The man was doing a good work for Christ. But here he is. He's been reviled by misinformed Christians. Two or three days later when Spurgeon found out the truth and had more light. He dispatched a cable. And the cable was disregard my letter son. I was totally misinformed. Now I believe of course Spurgeon should have waited. He could have waited before he sent off the letter to his son. But the truth is that many in the church are not only shot at by enemies without, but they're even shot at by friends within. And I want to say this morning, don't be a reviler. If you're a reviler, then you're doing the devil's work. Isn't the devil the accuser of the brethren? Isn't man of God and woman of God got enough problems without someone in the church reviling them? We're, we're to love one another. We're to pray one for another. We're to be kind one to another. We're to be tender-hearted. We're to be forgiving one another. But you know one of the worst things than being reviled? Revile in return. Don't do that. Because it's unchristlike. Don't give in to the devil's temptation. Don't do the devil's work. Think of Christ, who when he was reviled, he reviled not again. He was passionate about doing the will of God. I, I think today of squabbles, and divisions, and trouble, and discord that arises in churches. You've got one person who professes to be saved, and they've got a mark of grace about them. And then all of a sudden, they start accusing or reviling another professing Christian. And A, of course, starts reviling B. And what does B do? B responds in kind. 
And there's the devil laughing his head off. The devil's glad. The devil's rubbing his hands. That's what he wants. He wants to get Christians fighting each other and hurling insults at each other and backstabbing each other. And what happens? Their individual testimonies affected. The congregations affected. The, the, the communities affected. The, the denominations affected. And, and of course, it, it's not only sinful and wrong, but it's the devil's work. Think of the word threatened. When he suffered, he threatened not. The Lord Jesus suffered many threats. Stop preaching and teaching. We'll kill you. We'll drag you to court. We'll put you in jail. Now Christians, of course, are called to suffer for righteousness sake. We're not called to suffer for our sins. We're not called to suffer for our stubbornness. It's interesting that in Matthew chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, they called Jesus Beelzebub. You know what they said? You have a devil. They said you're a glutton. They, they, they said you're a wine-bibber. Here he was, cursed, slandered, attacked, the object of scorn and derision. And yet when he suffered that way, we read, he threatened not. In other words, he didn't retaliate. And this is the only way that you can overcome and be triumphant when you're threatened, and many Christians are threatened today with court and jail and all sorts of things because of their stand for Christ. And the only way they can overcome is to keep their eyes on the suffering Savior. What did he do? Ask yourself, how did he respond? He threatened not. We're to imitate him. We're to follow in his steps. You know, so often we ask ourselves the question, why do good people suffer? Many of God's people have bodily pain. They've got family problems. They, they've got financial turmoil of one kind or another. And, and we can focus in on why has this come. But rather than focus on the why, let the why peel into insignificance. And let's do as we said this morning in the hymn, turn your eyes on Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Let the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Because there's nothing in comparison to Christ. Looking at the suffering Saviour, be taken up with him. Think of all that he has done for you. We're called to this. This is part of the plan and purpose of God. Let me explain very quickly in the early church. Many of the believers were not educated. They were not materially prosperous. They were hated. They were despised. They, 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 they were hunted from their, their, their towns and villages. I think of the Roman Colosseum, groups of girls... Maybe 20 of them at one time, aged between 12 and 17. You can read it in the history of Flavius Josephus. And those girls were, were standing there in the arena. The wild beasts were let loose. The wild boar, the lion, so on and so forth. And you know what they did? They stood still. They didn't run. They, they sang praises to God. They held hands. They counted worthy to suffer for Jesus Christ. What were they doing? They were contemplating Christ. Not only his purity, but his passion. What did he do? When he was reviled, he didn't revile back. When he suffered, he threatened not. Even when he faced death, he committed himself to God. 
Notice something else here. I'll have to watch the time. Consider the propitiation of Christ. Look at verse 24. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body in the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you are healed. This verse is all about the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's a sermon all by itself. And uh, I'll probably preach that next week. But I want you to think of the context. I want you to think of the theme. You see, we're called to live a holy life. 1 Peter 1.15 We're called to holiness. And we're called to live a holy life amid all the sufferings of this life. And here we are being taught that Christ died for us. What's the purpose? Notice the latter part of verse 24, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness. In other words, Christ died for us, and in light of that, we also can die to sin. And then we can live unto righteousness. It's all about our union with him. It's all about our identification with him. He died for us and we died in him. Therefore, we can be triumphant when it comes to sin. Therefore, we can have power to overcome. First John 1 and 7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. Continually, the power of Christ's blood is being applied. You see, he's not only saved us, and sanctified us and separated us but he can succor us and supply our need even in the face of temptation and suffering now we have to be honest we can't imitate the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ upon the cross but we can live a life of self-denial we can live for others we can cope with suffering We can be victorious when we've got our eyes on Christ. See, there's no place for selfishness or stubbornness in the life of a Christian. If we're filled with the vision of Christ, it'll not be, well, I want my way and I'll do my thing and I'll gratify my desire. Isn't that why there's trouble in homes? Isn't that why there's trouble in churches? Because individuals have a stubborn heart. They have a selfishness about them. I I, I do what I want. I'll fulfill my loss, my entertainment, my amusement. But the Lord Jesus gave himself for others. He wasn't selfish. He wasn't stubborn. He wasn't sinful. He gave himself up to a life of self-denial. Even the death of the cross. Paul says for me to live as Christ. Lord here's my life. Lord here's my bit of wisdom. Here's my love. Here's my compassion. Here's my words. Here's my money. Lord my life's all for you. I want to live it for your glory. I want to live it for the benefit of your church and your people. I want to live it for the benefit of bringing your light to a lost world. When we consider the death of Christ, that's what we should be thinking about. There's two other thoughts here. I'll just throw them out. Consider the provision of Christ. Notice the reference. But ye are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Think of the word shepherd. The good shepherd going before his sheep. So often when we suffer, we feel we're forsaken, we're forgotten. God has failed us. But he's in front of us. The good shepherd. 
He's never been taken by surprise, even when the wolf comes. When the wolf comes to attack the sheep, he's there defending the sheep. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ. The Lord Jesus has never lost a sheep yet. Consider the provision, the shepherd, and all that shepherd-sheep relationship entails. Ye were a sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd. Isn't that wonderful? The shepherd-sheep relationship is brought in. We're, we're to consider that as we go through life. Also consider the protection of Christ and bishop. What's a bishop? In other words, an overseer. What does an overseer do? He, he looks on. I think of a factory floor. Think of hundreds of people maybe working at machines. Maybe the old spinning mill, the old flax mill. And there's the boss, and he's got a big window, and he's looking down on all the workers. And he can see those who are working, and those who are maybe having a wee chat, maybe those who are dallying about this, that, and the other. His eyes upon everyone. And that's the picture there. The bishop. He's the overseer. He's looking upon us as his people. Oh, think of that today. Do you know that's encouraged my heart already? Jesus is looking at us, even as we have gathered here for worship. He knows every heart. He knows every mind. Your thoughts have already been read by him. Do we want victory? In the face of sin, temptation. Here's how to have victory. Keep the supreme example in front of you. His purity. His passion. His propitiation. His provision and protection. May the Lord bless these few thoughts to our hearts today.